Good morning, everyone. Uh, Matt's going to be speaking from Esther 2, 1 to 18 today. So we're going to read that ahead of time. It's page 410 if you have the um, Church of the City Bible. All right. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young women, woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman who pleased him and won his favor, pleased, sorry, the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go in to the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her, And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tabath, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. This is the word of God. 
Well, if this is your first time uh, at a church service, welcome. Uh, it's so good to have you, and welcome to the reading of chapter 2 of the story of Esther. It's a seedy story. Uh, one of the books I was reading this week in preparation uh, for today, the title this uh, particular part of the text, a Cinderella story, and then in brackets, only seedier. Uh, so we are going to jump right in today. As we talked about last week, we began to really look at the book of Esther. And what you realize as you read through the story is that God appears nowhere. I mean, you can read it line by line, verse by verse. And what it would seem is that God doesn't appear anywhere. And so what we're really talking about as we go through this story is what do we do when God seems absent? What do we do in our lives when everything around us is screaming that there is no God? What do we do when our experiences are leading us to believe that there is no even faithful God? What do we do? And as we began to explore last week, God shows up in the shadows. And many of us can probably recall circumstances or situations in our lives where we look back and we say, you know what, while God didn't seem present in that particular situation, as I look back on it, am I ever aware that he was, in fact, present? Am I ever aware that if he had not been there or maybe even done that or moved things around, that I would actually probably today not even be a follower of Jesus? And uh, I, I think that many of us could probably attest to that in our lives as a testimony of what God has done, uh, even at times where he seems like he's not there. Well, today we're asking the question, is God faithful or is God present when you have compromised your faith? Or maybe you're living in a sin or you're struggling with a sin, or you are coming in today and you're like, I am not worthy of God. How could God even love me? How could God accept me? I've, I've known the truths of his word. I've, I've been part of a church for a long time. Maybe for you, it's I've never been part of anything sort of uh, in Christianity. Maybe you've been part of other religions and you're just going, am I, am I anything before this God? Is God still faithful to us when we sin? Sound like a good question to ask? Good. Well, that's where we're starting. Let's jump right in. I'm going to show you a bit of a timeline because our timeline is going to be helpful for us. So we began last week and talked about how Esther finds itself in history. Uh, this is not simply a story that is simply told that is a fake or fictitious story. This is a real story that happened, and it happened in a time of history. You can go back and you can study Xerxes the Great, who is the king that we find in this story. He's read in the story Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes the Great. And in the first chapter of Esther, we see that Xerxes throws this enormous party, six-month-long party, welcomes all the officials, or officials and governors into Susa, the capital, and essentially says, you can have whatever you want. And the reality and the reason that he is doing that is to try to reel them in and say, I am a powerful king, and I'm a powerful king that will give you whatever you want. So when we go to battle against Greece, you're going to come along, right? They're like, yeah, go king. Six-month party ends. Then there's a week-long party for all of the, the top guys in Susa. And what he's essentially wanting in then that time is to really show them, you've hosted all these people for six months. Now I really want to spoil you so that when we go to war, it's all gonna, you're going to be there for me. 
And so where we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 2 is some time has passed. Uh, Xerxes has, uh, when he removes Vashti from being a queen, it's in the third year of his reign. And then later on, uh, Esther becomes the queen in the tenth year. So seven years have passed. So where we find ourselves is right in here now. So Xerxes defeats the Greeks at Thermophilae, but is later defeated at Salamis. And then in 479 BC, the Greeks defeat the Persians at Plataea. And then in 478 BC, Esther becomes queen. Now what we learn as we study the history is that during this time, Xerxes, as he's come home, is, well, less confident than what we see him in chapter 1. In chapter 1, he is uh, displayed for you and me as a very powerful guy. In chapter 2, as we learn from the history, there's a historian by the name of Herodotus. And Herodotus says that during this time, after Xerxes has experienced this defeat, it's one of sensual overindulgence. So this is what historians are saying about Xerxes during this time. It's one of sexual and sensual overindulgence. It's actually what many historians believe lead to his assassination because he starts sleeping around with his officials' wives. Interesting stuff, eh? And here we have, we read about Esther. So this is kind of what's going on. This is the storyline. This is the timeline of what we're getting into. Now, in the first few verses of chapter 2, we read that Xerxes remembers Vashti and what he had done and what he had decreed. If you study the Hebrew, the word remembered is actually a little bit more than just, huh, remember that Vashti that I used to have as my queen? It's actually a bit of angst. It's upsetness. It's, oh man, I really miss that queen of mine. But because he sent forth the decree that says, you can no longer come in and see me, he can't actually bring her back in. Because that would be hypocritical to then everybody else watching. So in chapter 1, we see that when Xerxes has a personal issue, he calls in his advisors. So Xerxes is being displayed as a king that can't actually solve his own issues. He needs to have his advisors tell him what he is to do. So this is, again, what happens in chapter 2. He has his political advisors. And what do the political advisors advise him to do? Well, sir, uh, we think that you should gather all the young virgins from across the country, and whichever one pleases you the most should be your new queen. Now, (laughs) do you think Xerxes is going to say, no, terrible idea? He goes along with it, which plays into just how much this guy thinks of himself. He thinks he's the best. He thinks he's the greatest because most Persian kings would not actually do something like that. Most Persian kings would marry someone else that was also royal. We, it's probably one of the reasons that um, Memukin in chapter 1 is advising that he dismiss Vashti, maybe because then somebody from his own family could become the new queen. So instead what's happening here is they say, go gather young virgins. So uh, obviously in this, Xerxes is not concerned with what's normally done. He thinks, great, we'll gather them up, I'll sleep with them all, and I'll choose the one that I want the most. Like that is literally what's going on in this text. All that seems to matter to him is that they're young, they're virgins, they're good in bed. That is what's going on in this text text. This is who we are being introduced to. It's actually said of Artaxerxes II that he had 360 concubines in his harem. And they would just replenish the harem. If one of these kings brought one in, he didn't like them, okay, off you go. 
Now, obviously, this seems quite anti-women, which it is. Note this, though, that there were 500 young boys that were gathered each year and castrated and then were forced to serve as eunuchs in the harem. This is the culture. This is the environment by which we are reading about this story of Esther. And what the purpose of this all is to tell us, and the literary significance is the author is telling us is, this is dangerous ground. The king makes decisions however he wants on his whims. His political advisors know how to control him. And if they want something, you better look out because you could be in the way. And so this is what the author is setting up for us. It's also setting up that the odds are being stacked against Esther and Mordecai. It's increasingly showing us that, look out. And what is about to happen in this story is so, so miraculous. We then get a description of Mordecai. And I have a bit of a timeline or a, a birth order uh, picture that we're, I'm going to show on the screen here. So you see here we have Esther and Mordecai. We read in the story that, that Mordecai is actually Esther's uh, much older cousin and that Esther's parents had died. And so Mordecai had said, I will raise you. They obviously now live in Susa, uh, which is one of the capitals of the Persian Empire. We then read a little bit about the background of Mordecai. And if you follow this, they mention Shammai, Kish. Uh, we actually read uh, earlier on in the scriptures, you can read about uh, first King Saul. He was related to Kish, all from the tribe of Benjamin, which is from obviously Judah. Interesting thing to note about all of this is the number of times that those verses talk about exile or carried away. And what it's essentially trying to tell us, and what the author's trying to tell us, is that that was a very big ordeal. It was a big deal that they were carried away into exile, and now Mordecai and Esther are sitting under Persian rule, trying to be controlled by the Persian whims and the Persian uh, details, so on and so forth. We then read in the story, so we're introduced, this is the first introduction to Esther and Mordecai. We are then introduced with a little bit more detail to Esther. We read that there's a girl named Esther, and that her, also her other name was Hadassah. And these are her two different names. One is her uh, ancient uh, Judah, her name of Judah, or as a Jew, and her other is her Persian name. So in many ways, what we believe the author might even be intending to, for us to understand here is that she's kind of internally conflicted in her own heart with two identities. Is she Esther or is she Hadassah? Is she going to be faithful to her history or is she going to follow her Persian lineage and rule? We're then described for us in her, that she is beautiful to look at. She has a lovely appearance. Uh, actually, modern-day Jews uh, speak of the four most beautiful women in the world, Esther being one of them, then Sarah, Rahab, and Abigail. These, for them, are the four most beautiful women as they read their scriptures, and they say, look at these women. They were lovely to look at. They had beautiful figures. So we're being introduced, Esther, cousin of Mordecai, being cared for. She's a young woman. Now, there would have been varied response to being gathered, but we read in the text that Esther is carried away to participate in this, I don't even know what we would call it, but this terrible situation with the Persian king. And we're told that she's carried away. And there's a lot of different uh, debate amongst uh, scholars and theologians of whether or not she was okay with this. Like, was, was she completely fine with, with going ahead with it? And the, there would have been varied response at this time for many young women, as much as they understood that they would need to be spending a night 
with the king, once they came out of that, they were generally pretty much cared for in the harem. They were uh, very much, you know, they could take in the royal luxuries. Uh, they would have been essentially, from a socioeconomic perspective, very well cared for. And so there's a bit of a varied response. And for Esther, she's likely internally conflicted. Is this good or is this bad? Now, you and I, let's, let's put some application to it. This is what uh, Brian Gregory says in Inconspicuous Providence. He says, in fact, every Christian like Esther finds himself or herself in situations where one must choose between doing what is right and doing what is culturally accessible, between acting with integrity and compromising in order to seize an opportunity, between living consistently out of one's identity in Christ and living for whatever is desirable according to the surrounding cultural climate. So Esther very much is in a situation that many of us find ourselves in. Do we live by our convictions and live by the truth of God's word, or do we compromise and do what's being done around us? Nevertheless, Esther is taken to be part of this beauty fest with the king. We then read about Esther's preparations in verses 9 to 14. I have a picture of a harem. This is an artist's rendering or sketch of what this harem from the outside would have looked like. And we read that Esther actually makes most of her situation and gets close to the eunuch who is in charge. We read in the text that she actually found favor. So she asserts herself in an effort to charm and to gain his favor, and she's eager to make the most of her opportunity. She's not only beautiful, she is socially smart as well. And so the result of this favor that she's shown. She's given cosmetics. She's given her portion of food. She's given seven chosen young women from the king's palace. And then she was also advanced to the best place in the harem. But then notice in verse 10, Esther conceals her identity as a Jew. Now this is far more than just not saying anything. Because if you understand the scriptures in the Old Testament, to be a Jew meant that you had certain ritualistic regulations. So you couldn't eat particular meat. You had to pray X number of times a day. There was confession. All of these things Esther essentially conceals. She goes along with what's going on around her. If you remember the story of Daniel, we all remember the story of Daniel, and he refuses to go along with the whims of the king. We read about uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They, too, refuse to go along with the whims of the king. And as a result, because they're saying, no, we live for the one true God. Esther, in this situation, conceals her identity. We then, in verse 12, read about the Persian preparation. Uh, Persia, as we know, was an avid export of spices and fragments. And the women would spend their time in oil and cosmetics. It was some sort of fumigation bath treatments to change their skin tone, to remove blemishes. And this took up for 12 months. They were lotioned and perfume. Xerxes spares no expense for his pleasures. This is essentially what this is telling us. There was actually one particular practice where a woman would perfume her skin and clothing by crouching naked over the burner with her robe draped over her body like a tent. This was the common practice of this Persian preparation, that they had to take everything into consideration. The king wasn't going to let just anyone come in. No, bring in someone that's been treated. 
were then told in the text that they're allowed to take in whatever they wish. So after 12 months, women were taken before the king, and they may take with them whatever they may like. After which, she goes back to the harem, which she lives out a largely plush but pointless existence until she is called on again. She could not return to her home to start a family. Some uh, interpreters believe that they were allowed to take in whatever they wanted and then could potentially keep that thing after they had performed with the king on that particular evening. So many people have said it's essentially payment for your services rendered. This is, again, the sort of environment of things going on. The children that were conceived by the king in these unions were raised to serve their father in high positions, but were not legitimate heirs to the throne. In verse 14, the morning after, women would return to another harem, this one for concubines, and would not see the king again unless she was summoned. Again, they are not to return to their families and would be unable to start families. They had to live in the harem in isolated luxury for the rest of their lives. All for what? So this king can sleep with whomever he likes. And here we find Esther. So verses 15 to 18 tell us about Esther's turn. And this is, uh, again, just an artist's rendering of the situation. Esther in the middle there. So we read, In the tenth month, in the seventh year of his reign, so this is December or January, 478 BC, it has now been four years since Vashti's removal, and more than a thousand girls have passed through Xerxes' bedroom before Esther's turn. Unlike previous queen, Esther seems too willing to become the king's sexual object. And the text really does not tell us how she feels about the situation. But then in verses 17 to 18, we read that she is chosen. And the text wastes no time to tell us she won the extreme favor of the king. Now, we're not told directly, but to be chosen means that she is now to go marry this guy. Imagine! You're now going to go marry with the guy that has just gone through thousands of women. And you just so happen to be chosen. The result is he's so happy, he grants the remission of taxes to provinces and gives gifts with royal generosity through a royal feast for Esther. And this is in the Bible. Welcome. What an R-rated movie this would make. So what do we make of this? What do we make of this text? I think the first thing that I want to help us understand and apply is this. Moral and ethical compromise is never justifiable, even if it seems justified. Moral and ethical compromise is never justifiable, even if it seems justified. While many scholars are in a bit of disagreement on how Esther felt about it or the results of what happened, and maybe it was okay for her to do it, all of them agree in many ways that when Esther chose to go ahead and do this and to conceal her identity, she has compromised her morals and ethics as a child in God's, in, of God's children. She has chosen to go along with the flow rather than to stand up and say, no, I will not participate in this said uh, by Ian DeGood in his commentary, Esther and Ruth. If someone is willing to suffer the consequences, full obedience to God's law is always an option. If someone is willing to suffer the consequences, full obedience to God's law is always an option. The simple fact is that when she was found in a hard place, she did not resist, but instead compromised. 
So you ready to apply it to you and to me? How often have you been unwilling to face the consequences for doing what is right and instead compromise? So if we're to apply it directly to this text, this could be uh, sexual compromise. This could be chasing an opportunity of work and choosing that opportunity at work over your family. This could be integrity or your friendships. This could simply be hiding the identity of who you are. So how, how often do you, are you put in a place and do you understand this in your life where you're in a situation and rather than choosing to do the right thing, you compromise and you just do what everybody else is doing around you. And we just finished a series on work and I have to imagine that an enormous place where we can explore this is in our work. How often do you carry along with what everybody else is doing in your workplace, using the same language, treating people the same, speaking negatively about other people that you work with, speaking negatively about your bosses or the authority that God has placed there for you? How often do we compromise? Which, in many ways, this whole conversation raises the larger philosophical question of do the ends justify the means? And then to ask the question, but what if the means are sin? What if the means is knowing the right thing to do yet failing to do it? The sin of omission that James talks about in chapter 4. And in light of this, here's a couple of things to keep in mind. Number one, Jesus died to save sinners. Now why do we got to keep that in mind? Is because when we begin to have the conversation of it's okay for me to do this because this might be the eventual result, what we're forgetting is that if that thing is sinful, Jesus was nailed to the cross for it. So in many ways what we're saying is, Jesus, I'm okay that you were nailed to the cross because in the end it's all going to be okay. I was pondering a few years ago, would I be okay with the decisions of my life And the things that I was willing to do if I understood, which there was the reality, that those things are what put Jesus on the cross. Like, would I think twice about something that I was doing? Or would I think twice about something that I knew I was compromising if I remembered the fact that that thing has put Jesus Christ on the cross? And that Jesus Christ died to save sinners. And then secondly... God is the judge who will bring justice and wrath. So you and I are not the judges of our decisions. God is. 1 Peter 2 says that in this world you will be maligned or made fun of or marginalized for your faith. You take the average middle-class American Canadian person outside the city to a cross, and on that cross is hanging a middle-class man, bloodied, beaten, and broken, and you say, that is the man that I put my entire hope and faith and trust in. And what does the world do? They they want to mock, and they want to malign, but what do the scriptures say? Don't be concerned about them and what they think of you. They're going to have to answer to God. So in the business of wondering, okay, I can do this because the end might be okay, do we understand that you're not answering or having to justify yourself to one another here? You're going to have to justify yourself to God, who will bring justice. Well, then we begin asking the question, but what what is ultimate justice? What is justice? What What is then right and what is wrong? And we can get into this whole game of what that looks like. 
we need to realize that the scriptures make it a very apparent for us what is, what is right and what is wrong. And left to our own devices, we will do what is most comfortable. But God is the judge. And God will bring justice. Think about an example in scripture. Was it okay for Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery because Joseph would end up becoming the second biggest guy in Egypt? No, of course it wasn't. And that's not for the brothers to decide, well, we're going to sell him into slavery and maybe one day he'll actually turn out okay. No, their intention was that he would hopefully die. We've got to get rid of this brother of ours. Jesus says this in John 17, verses 14 to 19 about his followers. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. This is Jesus speaking to the Father in relation to us. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in the truth. Do you realize the example that we have to follow? It's Jesus. And when Jesus was put in a hard place, did he compromise? No. You know, they say the Garden of Gethsemane, if you actually look at where it's located... Jesus could have very easily, knowing what is ahead of him, gotten away. He could have said, I know what's coming. We read about him sweating drops of blood. He could have in that moment said, this is too much. I'm going to leave. Father, you can do it another way, but not through me. But what did he instead choose to do? No, Father. I will take it for them. Sometimes we forget that humanity aspect of Jesus. That he didn't compromise. And so that is the example that we follow. Romans 12 verse 2 says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. You know, a lot of people when they think of Christianity think it's weak. It's for the weak. You can just turn to God because you're unwilling to do the study or the research. Okay. The easy and the weak is just going along with what everybody else around you is doing. When you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, you're immediately saying, I'm going to take the hard way. It's not easy to be a follower of Jesus. The scriptures are filled with stories of God's people suffering. Jesus himself suffered. So it's not the easy way out. Are you kidding me? It's not the easy way out. The easy way is going along with what everybody else in our culture is trying to say. The hard way is standing up for what is right. The hard thing is standing and saying, I will die for Christ. And we have brothers and sisters on the other side of the world that also say Jesus is the way who are being killed daily and hourly because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Yet I'm nervous when I have my Bible open at Starbucks for DNA or my discipleship time. I'm like, what are they going to think of me if I just choose not to watch that or take that in? 
The end of chapter 1 of James, this is what James says. He says, what is true religion? He says, to take care of the widows and orphans and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What does it look like to keep yourself unstained from the world? You know, yesterday we were at uh, the St. Jacob's Market and Lauren uh, here from Portland, I don't think she'd ever seen an Amish person before. And so there were Amish, you know, obviously in their carts and buggies riding along. And I was like, that's an interesting, eh? And, and we were talking a little bit about Mennonite culture. And I was like, man, those, those guys in many ways have said, you know what, we're going to keep ourselves unstained from the world. And while we'd probably disagree on sort of the, the, where they drew that line, they're taking it seriously. Because they've looked and they've said, we're gonna, we don't, we don't want to be like everybody else. We don't want to do what everyone else is doing. You know, when, when the scriptures talk about the greatest commandments being love God and love others, Jesus, when he says that, he's also positioned in Luke at a place where Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And you know the story of the Good Samaritan where Jesus is essentially trying to show them, what does it truly mean? Like, who is your real neighbor? And Jesus in the story is the Samaritan. And so what he's saying to a Jewish population is, I'm the Samaritan. And as the Samaritan, I'll not only pay for the brokenness of this individual, but I'll actually go to the cross of the individual. And then comes the commandment, love God and love others, which he's just illustrated in the story, which is what it looks like to love God is that his way goes above yours. And that'll take you to a cross. And I'll pay it all for you. So here's a question. What is holding you back from serving the Lord and serving him faithfully? What is even holding you back maybe from identifying with God's people? You're like, I'm okay being a Christian personally, but I don't want to associate with all the other Christians because they're a little bit different. Guys, as I've said this before, that's like walking up to a couple that's married and saying, I like him, but I don't like her. I'd rather not hang out with her, but I'm okay with him. You can't have Christ without the bride. You can't have the groom without the bride. It's Christ and his church. And while we're a mess, he loves us. He's died to save us. Second point, and this is the reality of the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that God works perfectly through imperfect people, by his grace. This is a Portuguese proverb. God writes straight, but with crooked lines. Now you realize why this is good news, right? Because we're all crooked lines. You see, it's up to God to decide if he's going to use the messiness of our life for his good purposes. It's not up to you and to me to decide, all you, God, I'll choose on the messy things and then I'll use it for your purposes. God does that. And this is the good news is that if you're sitting here today and you've walked in and you'll be like, yo, like, I'm filled with shame about this thing. I don't think God, is, God would love me. I'm unworthy of his love. God says, look at Esther. Look what I was able to use for my good and for my glory. I was able, in the middle of a Persian empire that spanned the known world, they had so much power, the king had so much power, that he could literally gather thousands of young virgins from across his country and have them sleep with him. 
Yet God in the midst of that is using that situation for his good and for his glory. If God can use Esther, he certainly can use you. Do you believe that? If Esther was worthy of the faithful love of God, you are certainly worthy of the faithful love of God. Gregory says this, Whatever compromises you have made, whatever failures you have had, the truth of the matter is that God is subtly at work even in the midst of them. His providence is stronger than your compromises. His grace is greater than your failures. He is a God who takes the blemishes and blotches of our lives and uses them, redeems them, and transforms them by his grace into something beautiful. Guys, you're... Your primary identity is not your sins and your failings. Your primary identity, if you believe the good news of the gospel, is that you are a beloved child of the Most High God. Romans 8, 1 says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I was talking with my brother on Friday morning over breakfast, and he said one of his friends was, was sharing the truths of the gospel with them, because we all need to hear that, whether or not we've been a Christian for years or whether we're, we're just becoming followers of Jesus. And he said to me, he said, Matt, you know, one thing I've, I know that I've gotten wrong in my life is rather than seeing myself through my new identity, I see myself through my old identity trying to become a new person. This is the way that that changes. When you believe the good news of the gospel, you are a new creation, period. You have a new self, Period. It's not, I'm still in my old self and I'm trying to be new. It's no, you are a new self and the old self still wants to attack you. So what this means is that when when you sin or when you've done something and you know that you shouldn't have done it, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are new. So when you go back to feeling shame and, and feeling overwhelmed and feeling like, God can never love me, what you're essentially saying is, God, Jesus, what you did for me wasn't enough. I still need to make myself feel bad about it. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus knew about your sin before he died for your sin. He knew you would do what you just did. He knew what might happen later on today. He knows what's going to happen three or four years from now. Yet he loves you. And the strips are going to tell us. They're not going to say, well, yeah, just keep doing what you're doing. Do whatever you want. The scriptures say, if you truly understand what God in the gospel and by his grace has done for you, you're not going to want to continue walking in that way of life. You're going to understand your new identity as the new self. You see, what this means for you is that when you're struggling with whatever that, that sin is, is that your new self doesn't actually want it. To believe that you're, you have this need and you just need that thing is actually to still believe that you live in your old self. Well, I just need this. No, you don't. You're made new. You're a new creation that God has redeemed and is in the process of restoring. Do we believe this? This is so important because so many of us live our lives in shame. And so many of us have heard a gospel of, well, you know, accept like Jesus, obey him like completely, and only then will he love and accept you. That's false. The gospel is 
faith in Jesus, you are accepted, and then you live obeying him. Think about this in, in reference to relationships, and I've, I've used this before, but, you know, did I, when I started dating Andrea, right, like, if, if now in my life I make all of my scissors because, well, I hope she keeps loving me, so I'll do the dishes, like, that's going to feel like slavery. But if those things flow out of my love for her, because I understand that she still loves me even when I don't do the dishes, sweetie, I love you. And therefore, I'm, I'll do the dishes. Guys, I'm so concerned for God's people and his church. I'm concerned for us. One, in that we're compromising all over the place. And we're saying, it doesn't matter. Because I'm accepted, so I can do whatever I want. And if that's you today, hear the law which is that your sin separates you from God. And God is just. And God will serve those who have not found forgiveness in his son one day. But the second part, which needs to be claimed, is that he provides a way for you and for me. He paid a debt that we could not pay for ourselves. And he gives us new life, restored life, a new self. We're new creations. So your primary identity is not wanting that sin. Your self does not actually want that anymore because you've been made new. Nobody is too far from the love of God. Nobody is beyond his grace. And what the author of Esther is trying to expose for us is that if God could use the seedy situation of the Persian Empire, he can certainly use you in your life now. But as we're going to see in the story, it does involve saying, God, you're going first. So may our time today and the remaining times that we're going to sing, may it be about us declaring, God, I'm following you forward. I'm going to leave my old self behind. I'm going to walk into this new self that you have given me by your grace. As we do every week, we're going to have two people over here. Christine's already here, and she's going to be here to pray for you. If you're like, I just need some prayer. I need some encouragement. I got this thing going on in my life. Maybe you just need to confess it. Come forward. They're there to bless you by praying for you. And if you've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ before, Maybe this is a morning where you say, Jesus, I thank you for what you have done for me. Thank you for going to the cross, for not compromising. And God, may I not compromise as I look at you and how you didn't either. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather around your word this morning. I thank you for the truth and the good news of the gospel. I thank you for the story of Esther that exposes that for us. And I pray, Lord, that we would trust you more fully and more faithfully as you change our hearts and as you change our lives. I pray for those of us in this room today, God, that feel unworthy because of something that's going on in our lives. May we recognize, God, that those things do not have the final word, but you, Jesus, have the final word. And may we trust the gospel and the good news. May we believe, God, that you are not absent, but you are present. We thank you. Amen.